Hi, and welcome to Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. Please join us as we explore how you can enjoy a happier life and a fulfilling career, things that aren't always that easy in our modern world. We'll be taking a look to how you can explore well-being both inside and outside the workplace, how to prevent burnout, how to achieve true happiness in work and life, and so much more. So stick around. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. Hi. It's so good to have you with us. It's a very, very special episode this time. Do you know why, Sarah? Is it because we are in different countries? No. Oh, is it because we're going to deep dive into those petals we talked about on the workplace mental health and well-being? It could be, but it's not that either. Oh, why is it so exciting then? Because... This is our 50th episode of Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. How brilliant is that? Woohoo! Of course I didn't forget our anniversary, Jenny. <laughs> How wonderful. I'm so excited. And what a cool number for us to kick off with. It's pretty special, isn't it? Pretty darn special. Yeah, it really is. And what I love today is that we are petaling. Because last session, we had a great conversation about the new framework that the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy has put together with his team on um, workplace mental health and well-being, Mm -hmm. which I think we both agree is pretty darn special and it's going to be so helpful. It is fantastic. Yes. And today we're going to talk about that first petal on the model, which is all about protection from harm. So Sarah, tell me, what's this particular petal talking to us about? It's really the foundation You know, this is basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If people are scared, people are fearful, if they feel like they will be harmed in any way, physical, mental, anything else, emotional, then you can't start. So this is really the engine of everything else. Yes. And those two kind of main needs that they identified that we touched on a little bit, obviously, safety and security. So that for me is the critical piece and also why we're starting with it. We did toy with, you know, swapping it around a little bit. But actually, this is that fundamental foundation of how you build a thriving organization, how you yourself thrive at work. Uh, So I'm excited. I'm really excited to talk through this with you. And I I think it's a reflection too on on how the interpretation of protection from harm has morphed over the years. Mm. Because initially when health and safety first came into being, it was very much about the physical aspects of work. Absolutely. Because there are many jobs that were very dangerous and quite harmful Yep. To, to people's health yep. and their well-being. Yep. We moved on from chimney sweeps, thank goodness. <laughs> and it's an evolving thing, and I think there's always going to be room for improvement no matter what area you work in. But I think what's particularly relevant now is that so many organizations and businesses are recognizing that health and safety is so much more than just the physical aspect. Absolutely. You cannot do your work properly mm-hmm. if you are fearful of turning up because of the people that you are expected to work alongside with or for. Yeah. And we understand too from you know our social intelligence that relationships are everything and are what enable us to do our work. So protection from harm is the first step 
to enabling us to do the work that we know we're capable of. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And if anyone has ever had an incident at work where you are either physically hurt or or mentally hurt, you'll know what that's like when you try to come back to work. Yeah. It's scary. It feels dangerous. You are in fight, flight, freeze mode. And yeah, I think organizations as well as leaders have a have a responsibility to do everything we can to minimize those risks, just the way that we did in those days where we were sending people down the mines or out into the forests and people died in dangerous work more frequently than they do now. With the pandemic that we're seeing and the, the rise of mental health issues and the cost that has... Absolutely. I I do often talk about the financial cost, but that's a given. And I want to talk about the human cost, really, the the damage that does to individuals, to themselves, to their confidence, to their families. We have a responsibility to protect the humans who work for us. And so I think this is critical. And it's it's wonderful. I mean, that sounded really deep and very quite. (laughs) But, you know, to have, especially from the US, which I think is a different economy to the one I get to work at here in Europe, to see them really laying this on the line and talking about it is absolutely brilliant. And there's been more of this, right? You had the SEC, uh, the commission changing their practices back in 2021. You've got this coming out in 2022. You know, it's starting to matter. Yes. We now have a new model here, which has been talked about a lot over the last 12 months, where the requirements of every single employer to seek out and identify potential psychosocial hazards for every employee and to mitigate those as a given, mm. not something they can get around to. It has to be addressed now yeah. Um, because there will be an economic cost to an organisation that is found not to have done that. And I think while, yes, you, you, you know, we talk about the costs of not having psychological safety yeah. and mental health um, workplaces, but I think when it's going to hit an organisation in the hip pocket, if they are found to be lacking, then that's also going to be a little bit of a carrot and a stick to encourage those organisations that maybe are lagging behind a bit. Maybe it's on the radar, but yep. haven't prioritised it. I think this has now brought it in front of everybody's field of vision to say we have got to address this now, particularly as we uh, emerge from the global pandemic and we are witnessing this surge in people reporting high levels of psychological distress, as well as mental illness, as well as all the burnout that's going on. So it is absolutely fundamental that we look at the safety piece and and how that differs from security. Mm. I'd like to ask you, Sarah, when we're talking here about safety and security, what's the difference? Mm. Good question. So I guess safety is obviously all the things we've just been talking about, keeping people safe. And then security is two-pronged for me in this way. The first one being securing that safety. So people don't have to be thinking about it, right? So if I go to my workplace, I know it's safe. I am secure in that knowledge. And so I don't have to constantly be scanning for harassment, physical things, harm. So there's that security of knowledge that where I work is safe for me. And the second is security in terms of job security. Do I know that I'm not threatened? I can't lose my job for a slight mistake. I 
am not going to be harmed or my family won't be harmed by the actions that I take at work. I'm protected. Um, so for me, those are the two ways I would see that playing out. How about you, Jenny? Oh, I would agree with that, Sarah. I think, you know, we have to start with the safety piece first. Mm -hmm. And then that to to build up the security around knowing that um, your job is secure, you have that financial security too. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that we are currently in a position where job tenure is is really important, obviously, to organisations and to individuals. Yeah. We are in a very tight market currently. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere I go, people are telling me, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough people to fill all the vacancies. <laughs> I was working with one company. They had something like, you no, know, 40,000 vacancies. It was quite a big company, right? But 40,000. Can you imagine? It's insane. Wow. Those who are in position already are carrying an enormous additional burden, which then can impact their safety. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And then we also see some of the organizations that always make me shake my head. And Twitter, <laughs> I count you amongst these. Oh. Oh my goodness, we can have a whole session on what's been going on there, couldn't we? <laughs> well, you know, overnight, Twitter gets taken over by Elon Musk, and then overnight, half the workplace is like gone. Yeah. So, where is the safety and security in that situation? Yeah. And of course, yeah. the, the security aspect can be restored by just a little bit of common humanity. Exactly. If somebody is going to have to be laid off, and of course, layoffs are normal part of business. Yeah. It happened. Just showing a little bit of dignity and respect to those people impacted by that goes such a long compassion, way. Compassion, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little bit of compassion. It's interesting you say that because layoffs happen, and I understand that, that that does need to happen. There's something else, though, that there are companies, um, Barry Waymiller is one that I know of, where you can make different decisions in your organization than to lay off people. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean that's always the case. Sometimes those things happen. Sometimes those things are great for the people. You know, it gives them a new lease on life and all sorts of things. But I think one of the ways to provide security is to say things like, we're not going to do this. We're going to look for other ways. And we want to invite you in to have those conversations, which I think is a little caveat and a little aside there that we don't always have to go down that route. It's quite often other savings and other opportunities to go for. It's quite easy to just cut people, isn't it? It is. Uh, I've been involved or witnessing an organization go through this very position whereby circumstances were going to require a significant change in structure of the organization. Mm -hmm. So basically, they had the choice of laying off a significant number of workers in the organization mm -hmm. or asking those who were going to be possibly affected, you know, what were their thoughts about taking a pay cut? Temporarily, hopefully, but saying, you know, we might have to reduce your pay by maybe 20, 25%. I mean, not an insignificant mm -hmm. cut. No, no, it's a big, it's a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's been interesting is that in this instance, and I've heard of other instances as well, that the employees actually made the choice that they were very happy to go along with the reduced pay mm -hmm. on the understanding that this was going to be reviewed very regularly. Um, and restored as soon as possible, rather than face the prospect of losing a job altogether. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? Yeah. Right there, people lost out big time. Mm -hmm. 
but they were involved in the conversation, right? They were brought into that and they got to choose how that impacted them and their team members. Very similar to what happened at the Barry Waymiller thing and such a different outcome, such a different outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is, I think that is absolutely a great example of psychological safety in the workplace, security and safety, and know, knowing that happens. Great conversation. I didn't expect it to go that way, but mm, it's made me think. <laughs> made me think. <laughs> well, we never know with our conversations, do we? You know, where it's going to I know, I know. It's uh, What are you talking about? This is all perfectly planned out, Jenny. <laughs> And, and I guess um, one of the issues that I see as a consequence of where people are carrying an additional burden because mm. they haven't got enough resources, they mm-hmm. haven't got support because they're understaffed chronically, oh, yep. is the issue of sufficient rest, sufficient downtime. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've got in place to ensure that you know, nobody works more than a certain number of hours per week. Nobody should work a shift for more than so many hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that doesn't always mean that that actually takes place. Yeah. And yet the consequences of having an overstretched, overfatigued workforce takes us back to that safety piece because you're much more at risk of making a mistake or causing yep. an accident yep. or something yep. much bigger. So it's quite serious stuff. So we really do need to address the rest component and, um, I don't know what it's like or what you're witnessing in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same for you in the UK and Europe as it is for us over here in Australasia. Too many people are being asked to work for too long because to cover all the shifts that need to be covered. I think that is definitely here. My experience is more on knowledge workers than on kind of physical production. Um, But it's interesting. It's something that I've definitely been observing is that in the physical production world, there was a real clear start and end. You know, you have to physically go to the workplace to do the work. And this piece about hybrid, global, remote working, I love all of the above, by the way, but I don't think we've gotten the structure of that right in a way that needs to support people. So in a similar vein of people working double shifts, I think across the the knowledge economy and the kind of tech world that I spend most of my time in, I see the workload being delivered by fewer people, which has the same impact. And also because you can't go into the office to do it, or you don't need to, you can do it at home, you can do it on the weekends, you can check in early, you can start earlier, you can finish later. And and we know, you know, especially there's a good good study that came out on um, software developers who, when they worked more than 60 hours a week for over four weeks, so four weeks or two to four weeks, you do get a boost, right? Because it's a, let's all get together. Let's all work really hard. And we've all been there. You got to climb the mountain. You got to do, sometimes you got to pull together, launch that product, do whatever it is. And I don't think anyone minds that as a one-off, but what's happened is that one-off has become normal. And so as soon as you hit more than four weeks at those high, high workloads, then productivity drops massively. It's why the four day work week is having such knocking everything out of the park, because people are just as productive, if not more productive, more capable of doing their work when they're working fewer hours. So we've got this wrong. And and how do we enable adequate rest in this hybrid, remote, online, hyper-connected world, I think is, is something I haven't seen a perfect answer to yet. 
Um, I'd love to know if anyone knows of how they've done that. Um, I think also personal preference comes into play. I often, when I ask these questions or have these conversations, have people going, well, you just don't check your emails. It's that simple. And it's really not that simple. (laughs) If only it was that simple. (laughs) If only it was that simple. And I think there are certain personality types where people are very capable of doing that. Um, And I'm sure if they could just harness what they're capable of doing and how they do that, it would be really useful for those of us who have uh, potentially different personality types (laughs) or different jobs, you know? Um, So yeah, how do we enable this adequate rest being an, an incredibly important thing? We know it leads to what? Exhaustion, anxiety, depression, high workload equals burnout. I mean, there's absolutely, it's like a direct path. Like I'm just going to get on this path to burnout now. (laughs) And again, yeah, mistakes. And then when you're dealing in physical world, that's injuries, right? So that's right. Yeah. Enabling adequate rest feeds straight into those things. So I think this is where um, having the awareness at an individual level, Mm. because each and every one of can sort of put into place those strategies to help ourselves if we understand ourselves enough yep. to know that working for prolonged periods of time really makes us feel awful, over overstretched, over fatigued, over everything. Mm-hmm. So it's about then recognizing, well, if I just have a five to 10 minute break, this actually makes me feel so much better and then I can cope. Yeah. But of course, that needs to be incorporated with the leaders of the organization looking out for signs of fatigue yeah, in the workforce. Exactly. When they can see that everybody's hanging on by their fingernails, then it's time to review job crafting, you know, what can be done differently Yeah, yeah. to ensure that people do get a little bit more time to sort of rest and recover. Mm-hmm. And how do we address it when, and this is something that is going to be beyond the, the remit of an individual leader, so many people have multiple jobs today. Yep. They might have one main job, yep. but they might have a second or even a third job to supplement the yep. main one. They might have their side hustle. They might be starting yep. their own business. Yep. They might be carers. You know, we have this kind of first set of people, don't we, who are not only caring for their children, they're caring for their parents. That's right. So, And that's quite a, an unseen weight on people, isn't it? it is. It's the invisible stuff. Yeah, which um, sometimes gets overlooked. So I think let's start with the visible. Yeah. And then look towards what's there, but we're not actually seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the best leaders I ever worked with, that was his favorite question. What am I not seeing here? Mm. And I really like that as a question. I think it's a great one. And I think that shows great um, insight to the fact we all have our own blind spots. Mm-hmm. We might think that we can see what's going on and can tackle it. Yeah. But sometimes we need to ask so people can sort of say, well, actually, this is what's been happening. And um, then, then you can take the steps necessary to rectify a particular situation. And I think the safety piece is fundamental to, A, reducing the amount of stress that people are having to deal with on a daily basis. Secondly, mm-hmm. it's vital to turning the tide on the number of people trying to deal with mental health issues. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, of course, essential for reducing the the amount of burnout that so many people are reporting currently. So we desperately need the safety factor to be put in place first. Yeah. Adding in the security mode and then um, moving forward to there because I think this is what will support people in the best way moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And you talked there about supporting mental health, you know, and I think a lot of the stuff we mentioned at the beginning of this show, it's a huge leap forward to where we were five years ago, isn't it? You know, the support for mental health, people talking about it, um, there being offers in the workplace. I think, interestingly, it's become more normal. The best examples I've heard of are when leaders share their struggles first. Right. Yes. And that helps with psychological safety, like share your mistakes first. But the same goes for mental health. When leaders make it okay to be vulnerable about their mental health, that creates a a place, a safe place. Yep. A secure place where you can have those conversations. And I think there's a bit of a challenge around there are EAP programs that have been massively, I think, boosted, which is wonderful. Again, organizations trying to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. not always being utilized in the workplace. And actually, there was a study over the pandemic in the US that that looked at, I think it was 2000 workplaces, and a huge percentage of minorities did not feel supported. Um, Even though there was way more on offer, they were either not supported to take advantage of it, they weren't able to take advantage of it, you know, the answer to high workload is not to give people a load of mental health support on resilience. <laughs> Please don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, don't get yeah, sorry. I'll go off on a whole other tangent, won't I? You know that. <laughs> so it's I love that this conversation is happening. It still feels a little tick boxy, I have to say for me. We can put money in it and that's fine. Well, we've we've invested in this. So this is looks this looks good. This is good. But I think, I don't know what you think, but connection personal connection, what you talked about, Jenny, being aware of what's happening for the people who work for you, that takes time, that takes attention, that takes intention. I remember hearing someone say, oh, and I've used this program when I had a difficult, and you, I mean, you could hear it. It was like being read off a card. It was like, leaders, tell people that you've done this thing. (laughs) I once had a problem and I used a counselor and it was great. Uh, You should do. <laughs> vulnerability and and being authentic and true and all these things normalize those conversations normalize talking about it and i like the the normalization in the work that we do jenny of mental health can be poor or good yeah totally so what are we doing to support people's good mental health so supporting mental health good mental health also needs support we're getting better at getting people out of you know, poor mental health to okay. But what are we doing to help them thrive? That's you and I, we have a podcast to help people thrive, but (laughs) because we can really focus on, on those negative issues, whereas, and those people 100% need help. We should have all of the support there for them. And I don't want to diminish that in any way, but then as a workplace, how do we, sounds cheesy, but wrap our love and our care around those people and help them to be the best version of themselves. That's supporting mental health as well, in my opinion. And, you know, caring for our employees. Yeah, that that conjures up an image of, for me, of somebody wrapping their arms around you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think when we wrap our arms around someone, we really show that we care. Yeah. And we understand their pain and suffering. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting every single boss needs to go and you know, put his arms or her arms around every employee. No, it may not be appropriate to do this. <laughs> it's, it's all about showing kindness and compassion, showing our human side. Um, yes. And I think when, when leaders get that being vulnerable on their part 
isn't a sign of mm. weakness. It's a sign of showing mm. that they're human too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they have feelings and go through difficult times just the same as everybody else. Just the same. And I think that is so powerful and serves to reduce the associated stigma. Oh, gosh, what will my boss think of me if I'm not you know, keeping up with everything, yeah. et cetera, et cetera? Because we're so good at telling ourselves that we're no good or we're, we're, we're diminished in some way. Ugh. And we just need somebody, yep. you know what, you're okay. You're, you're really under the pump at the moment. You're, you're doing really well. Thank you. Um, you know, showing appreciation for pushing through. Oh, important. It, it makes such a difference, such a difference oh, to, to how safe we feel. Yeah. And I think if we can get better at coming together, whether it's with our colleagues whether it's with our teams and our team managers or our supervisors. And then, of course, the leadership demonstrating that they are human too. Then we all Mm -hmm. get that sense of it's safe to be here. And I think particularly now, you know, we've just navigated through a global pandemic. Kudos to our leaders who have Yes, absolutely. Organizations and businesses afloat and then kept people in work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm I think, you know, if they can reveal too the toll it's taken on them, yeah, not just look how much I've had to go through, but just to, to show the human side of it, I think mm-hmm. gives people a sense of belonging. And it's that connection piece, which I think is so vital to safety. When you know that you belong, when you're part of a tribe or a family or whatever, you know it's safe to be there and you can relax a bit because you know others have, are looking out for you. And how good is that? Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's a perfect way to, I guess, get to the final point on this petal, which was about operational operationalizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, you know, norms, policies, and programs is how they phrase it. Yeah. And I think this is a really deep subject. Um, but again, really important. Like I said, all of all of those programs that were put into place, it was one in six people, you know, diverse people who felt that they had support. So five out of six of those diverse people did not feel supported in that space. And so yeah. really, really looking at what they mean, it needs to, I think, be constantly looked at because we all have, you know, all these forms of unconscious bias. You've got intersectionality, such a deep place for us to be having conversations. And in some respects, a place where I can't always have the conversation. Um, I can talk about kind of my experience of being a woman and being a woman in leadership and being a woman in technology. I can talk about being an immigrant in a different country, but that's my, I guess that's my level of intersectionality as a parent. But there are so many deep deep layers to this, and I don't want to um, trivialize those. But one thing I read from um, David McQueen, which was something that has always stood out for me to help in this way and is making salaries transparent. Yes. That for me is a really, really simple and easy way to help visualize and make visible places where your organization might be falling short. Totally. Yeah. That transparency helps to reduce or mitigate any sense of a lack of equity. Unfairness is a massive trigger to threat. Yep. You know what I'm trying to say Absolutely. (laughs) It's our threat response. Yeah. It's one of the biggest ones, actually, when we perceive things to be unfair. That's really like it's, it's deep inside of our brains. I think every workplace issue where, you know, people are negotiating for higher pay and better conditions, da, 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 da. Mm. It's founded 
on their perception of what they see as fair and they see that what they're being offered is unfair. And until you can actually negotiate between the two, yeah. you're pulled apart. You're never going anywhere. Yeah. And I think they found that in the in the absence of data, yes. we assume unfairness, don't we? If if we don't know, yes. then we assume unfairness. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's kind of a really simple and easy way for you to take a look at your organization. Um, and I can say this purely as a woman, I didn't feel well equipped probably until my 40s to be able to negotiate salary, to ask for what I believe to be my worth. I didn't learn that. I didn't know to go in hard, how to, it wasn't something I was ever taught. And and my understanding is that quite a lot of people who sit in, in a diverse group those are things they don't know their value. They're not taught their value um, or they're taught to undervalue themselves. Mm. Um, you're lucky just to have a job. You're lucky. You know, there's lots of narratives that I think historically they are, they get embedded in us, whether we are explicitly taught them or not. And this is just a way to go, oh, that's so interesting. This job is worth this much. And this is what that person does. This job is worth this much. I can, I'm doing those things, actually. I tick all those boxes. So I can do that. Or, oh, hey, I'm worth this much. I'm going to go in and ask for it. And I think if you're scared about making salaries transparent, that's a bit of a flag for me. I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> and I think with the diversity of the workplaces that we have today, it's essential that each and every one of us has the ability to understand what our own strengths are mm. and what values we hold dear to our hearts. Because yeah. when you understand what your particular talents and what your particular strengths are, it then makes it easier to stand up for yourself and whether you call it your rights or your desires or whatever. But I think when you feel that you are being marginalized in some way because of disability or whatever other aspect of diversity you belong to that you think isn't on the level playing field. Yeah. It reduces your capacity to to step forward, to find the courage to to speak up and say your piece. Yes. Yeah. Celebrating diversity is all about recognizing that we're all unique. Yep. We all have different talents and strengths. And when they are brought forward, then they can be acknowledged because so often we don't know of all the beautiful talents that, you know, our colleagues have. Absolutely. And sometimes I learn things about, you know, people that I thought I knew quite well. I'd say, well, you're a bit of a dark horse, didn't know you could do that. <laughs> That's my fault for not asking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and bringing those people to the fore and having people who think and were raised and look and feel and experience differently than us. Yes. It's not comfortable a lot of the time. But man, does it produce some beautiful, beautiful things. Mm. So yeah, trying to normalize that good friction, those good conversations. Good friction, good tension, and I think curiosity. Oh, curiosity. It's the magic, right? Yeah. That's a great point, Jenny. Oh, okay. Well, that is the four, I guess, areas of that petal that we've talked through. So those encompass, obviously, psychological safety and physical safety enabling adequate rest, normalizing and supporting mental health, and operationalizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. So we'd love to hear, how are you taking these? What are you going to do? What are your kind of 
cheats that you do to to make sure this stays front of mind. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you in our next session. Absolutely. We've got more petals to share, haven't we, Sarah? We have just a few more petals. Yeah, it's very exciting. And happy 50th to us, Jenny. Happy 50th to us. I think it's time for a little celebration. (laughs) I think so. Cheers. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for joining us again. And we very much appreciate you listening to our conversations and your input. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we did recording it. And you can always get involved in the well-being conversation at all of our social links in the show notes. Until next time, stay safe, stay happy, and thrive in whatever you do.